This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. It's a kind of lawsuit you may not have heard of and one that may seem almost counterintuitive, suing a hospital or a doctor for saving your life. But lawsuits over wrongfully prolonging life are being recognized in courts today. A Montana jury awarded more than $400,000 in damages to the estate of a man who was resuscitated twice, despite the fact that he had a DNR, or Do Not Resuscitate, order in his file. Joining me is Thaddeus Pope, a professor at the Mitchell Hamlin School of Law. So tell us about these wrongful prolongation of life lawsuits and when they started to be recognized in the courts. Sure. So those sorts of lawsuits started decades ago. Right? We first started having advanced directives in the 1970s. And then after people started completing advanced directives, it didn't take too long for cases to arise where doctors and hospitals did not honor or follow the instructions in those advanced directives. But the cases that were brought during the 1980s and 1990s were almost uniformly unsuccessful because the courts were unwilling to recognize that there had actually been any harm, right? The doctors saved your life. They resuscitated you when your heart stopped or they intubated you when you couldn't breathe. And therefore, it was difficult for the courts to grapple with the concept that the saving of your life is in fact a compensable injury, right? It's a harm. But more recently, and this is really only over the past, let's say, five years, you now have a string of lawsuits that have been successful. In the Montana case that was cited in the Boston Globe story this week, there was a $400,000 verdict. There was a million-dollar settlement in Southern California, a million-dollar settlement in Georgia, and other cases. And so There's really been a turn both at the trial levels where verdicts are coming out at the appellate levels where the appellate courts are saying, yes, this is a compensable legal injury. For decades, we've been telling people, and when I say we, I mean government agencies, nonprofits have been encouraging people to do advanced care planning, right? They'd say, hey, June, hey, Thaddeus, do you have an advanced directive? Have you talked with your family about your wishes? So you can make sure that if you lose capacity, You can get the treatment that you want and avoid the treatment that you don't want. And so since we've been making that promise so prominently, so repeatedly for so long, that now when that promise is breached, it does, I think, seem to the courts more logical, more palatable that that sort of breach of a promise should be compensable. In the Montana case, Rodney Knopfel had a DNR order in his file a band on his wrist indicating he didn't want to be resuscitated, and yet the staff resuscitated him twice. What does that speak to? Is it just the hospital staff ignoring the wishes of the patient? That's a great question. So what we see, I think, are two different types of cases. In one type of case, the clinicians actually make a deliberate and intentional decision. They don't agree with the patient's choice, or they don't agree with the family's choice and therefore they don't follow it. In the Montana case, it's not clear that that's what happened. It appears that it's more a case of negligence where either his wishes weren't recorded very carefully or there was negligence in how the staff actually checked or ascertained what his wishes were. And since it was in his chart and he had the wristband and they had just talked to his wife, they had at least three separate sources of 
information to know that he didn't want to be resuscitated. And so therefore, to proceed in the face of all that contrary information seems at least negligent. Maybe it's beyond negligent. Maybe it's a higher level. Maybe it's reckless disregard. Maybe it was intentional. I don't know. But it was at least negligent. And the jury did find negligence in that case. In the other cases you mentioned, was it also negligence? Were the circumstances similar? So there's a case, uh, and this went up to the Georgia Supreme Court, the Alexia versus Doctors Hospital case. And in that case, it seemed that it was more intentional. So the, the, the doctor in that case knew that the patient had an advanced directive, that she did not want to be intubated. He knew that the agent the healthcare agents appointed under the advanced directive had also instructed the same, but said, you know what, let's go ahead and intubate her anyway. So in that case, it appears that it wasn't a negligent failure to record the patient's preferences or a negligent failure to check the record, but it was an intentional decision to do something different, thinking this was in the record, thinking, well, we can always undo it, right? If we intubate somebody and we put them on the chemical ventilation, we can always undo that later. So we'll just err on the side of doing that. And if we're wrong, we can undo it. And what the court said in that case was, yeah, but you still did something that you knew was contrary to the patient's preferences. And so even though it was for a short duration of time, as it was in Montana, right? Again, it was only a short duration of time. It's still a compensable injury. So some of these cases are just mere negligence, failure to check the chart, failure to check the wristband, failure to communicate from one clinician to another clinician. But some do appear to be intentional. Now, it seems as if in the cases we've been talking about, patients have done what they're supposed to do. They've filled out the advanced directive. So what can be done to ensure that hospitals follow the wishes of the patients? It's worth noting only around 30, 35% of us actually have done advanced care planning and have completed advanced directives. That number is actually going way up because of COVID-19, but still most of us haven't done that. But for those who have done advanced directives, how do we make sure that they actually get followed? I think the first thing is always appoint an agent. Advanced directives in almost every state have two parts. There's the instructional part where you can tell us what treatments you want and what treatments you don't want. But then there's also the appointment of agent part. It used to be called the durable power of attorney for healthcare. That's probably the more important part because then you have an actual person who can show up and be your advocate and make sure that your wishes get followed. And you want to appoint somebody who can actually be a good advocate, somebody who you trust, somebody who knows your values and preferences, and somebody who will be available at the relevant time. And you probably want a backup in case your primary agent is not available. So that's probably the most important thing. And then the second thing I think is that these cases may already be accomplishing this, is there may be more training in healthcare systems to make sure that we are carefully documenting and communicating patient preferences about their end-of-life care. What is a do-not-resuscitate law? So do-not-resuscitate, this is another uh, unfortunate problem. Uh, Do-not-resuscitate or DNR order um, really only pertains to the situation where the patient's uh, heart uh, or they stop breathing or their heart or they or they la- or they or they don't have a pulse right so it just means that you're gonna it means that you're not going to do CPR to try to restore the patient's uh, circulation or breathing uh, so th- that's it right a DNR order means we're not going to do CPR uh, so it's 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 an order to not do one specific type of life-sustaining treatment. 
unfortunately, and there's a lot of studies on this, those, those orders are over-interpreted. And so we've done many surveys of physicians and also nurses, um, you know, giving them hypothetical scenarios and asking them what they should do. And unfortunately, many times uh, a clinician seeing that a patient has a DNR order. And remember, it, it only means that you're not supposed to do CPR, but that patient would still receive all other sorts of life-sustaining treatment. Um, but they would interpret it to mean that the patient is comfort measures only, right? They're not going to get any curative directed treatment or any uh, other life-sustaining treatment. So they, they, inter they over-interpret the meaning of a DNR order. And so that, that is definitely a patient safety risk that also needs to be worked on. What is the exact law that, that we're talking about? So there's a lot of different laws. There's, um, most states now have a pulse law. So in New York, it's called a MOLST, M-O-L-S-T, Medical Orders for Life-Sustaining Treatment. Um, this, this, and so there's a separate statute in New York for this and a separate statute in many states, or most states for this. Um, and the idea is what is it, is it, is an advanced directive, which is the sort of document that would, was at issue in the Georgia case and in some of these other cases, is just um, uh, your wishes. Right? It's just a recording of your wishes. And the thought maybe 20 years ago was that it, it, we, we can um, better assure that your wishes are followed if we convert the advanced directive into a medical order set. Uh, and, the idea, and that's what a, that's what a pulse is, physician orders for life-sustaining treatment. Um, and if it's a medical order set, it's a, it's a uniform form. It's a simpler form. It's a one-page form usually. Um, and it, since, it, since it already is a set of medical orders, it's immediately actionable, right? So we don't need to look at your advanced directive, figure out what you want, and then write orders to implement your wishes. The POLST already is a set of medical orders, so it's immediately actionable. Um, and so that's and, – and in fact, the evidence does show – that if you're a seriously ill individual, it would be a really good idea to not only have an advanced directive, but to also have a pulse, because that better assures that your that your wishes get followed more than just having an advanced directive by itself. So when you asked me a second ago, what are the things that patients can do to better assure that their end of life wishes get respected? For at least the seriously ill patient or seriously ill individuals, they should have not only an advanced directive, but also a pulse. So this discussion seems to highlight the fact that this is a very confusing area of the law that I think most people don't know about. So should doctors be paid for having sessions with patients to explain this to them? Yes. A few, so most patients, of course, that are um, older, their primary source of insurance is Medicare. And a few years ago, um, Medicare did change the physician uh, schedule to allow payment uh, for advanced care planning discussions. Uh, and, the, and the thought was that would be one way 
to incentivize doctors to sit down and talk with patients um, about their wishes and ideally to, in fact, complete an advanced directive and also for the relevant patients to complete a pulse. Um, so we've had that, uh, th those two new codes, those two new CPT codes to pay for these sorts of discussions now for uh, five years. Um, unfortunately, the evidence shows that it hasn't um, produced the sort of, the, the incentive hasn't been strong enough uh, to incentivize um, the discussions, in, I think, in the way that it was hoped for, right? So we continue to see uh, legislation uh, designed to provide an even stronger incentive. And the bills have done all sorts of things. Sometimes the idea, well, we pay not only the doctors, we'll pay the beneficiary, right? So if you complete an advanced directive, we'll pay you $75. Um, and, and the reason to do that, by the way, is because we know that overwhelmingly, if you ask people what they want at the end of life, they would prefer to forego aggressive, curative-directed measures at the end of life and would prefer just to die at home um, on hospice. Unfortunately, that's not what happens. Uh, and uh, so, therefore, if we actually provided the care that Americans want, we probably would save a lot of money. Medicare would save a lot of money, and therefore, by if, if that incentive worked, and I don't know if it would, but if we pay people $75 to complete an advanced directive, and they actually completed an advanced directive, and they can complete it any way that they want, right? All, all we're asking people to do is tell us what you want, tell us what you don't want. We're not, it's your choice. But most people, in fact, would choose, for example, if they were permanently unconscious, to say, I wouldn't want to live like that, right? You don't need to continue to give me mechanical ventilation and artificial hydration if I'm permanently unconscious. So most people would decline uh, a lot of care at the end of life that they would otherwise be getting if they didn't complete an advanced directive. How important do you think it is that these lawsuits are being recognized? Well, I think it's very important that these cases, first of all, that these cases were brought Secondly, that they were resolved in the way that they were resolved. And third, that the Boston Globe and Kaiser Health News and you are talking about them because um, it, it, I think you, the message needs to be sent that it's worth your time to complete an advanced directive. I think because if you think like, oh, I, I hear that, that hospitals and doctors don't always follow them. Sometimes they ignore them. Sometimes they lose them. Then, then, of course, the natural response is, why bother, right? Why bother to complete the advanced directive? Because it's probably not going to get followed anyway, right? So the, it gives people a sense of utility. So I think it's important to send the message, no, they have a legal duty to follow them. Um, and if they don't, they will be punished. Um, and so it is worth your time to complete okay. an advanced directive. Thanks for being on the Bloomberg Law Show. That's Thaddeus Pope, a professor at the Mitchell Hamlin School of Law. The 13th Amendment is often described as the amendment that abolished slavery in this country. But there is a loophole that permits slavery as punishment for a crime. It's this loophole that more than a dozen human rights and social justice organizations want to get rid of. And last month, Democratic members of the House and Senate introduced a joint resolution 
aimed at striking that language from the Constitution. Joining me is Michelle Goodwin, a constitutional law professor at the University of California, Irvine. For those who don't know, tell us about the 13th Amendment, all parts of the 13th Amendment. So the 13th Amendment was originally proposed in order to end slavery entirely in the United States. This is after the Civil War has ended. The Emancipation Proclamation, which was a wartime measure, was coming to an end. Many people presume that the Emancipation Proclamation was what ended slavery. It wasn't. What Lincoln said is that if you join the Union, you may keep your slaves. But if you decide that you will not join the Union, then your slaves will be freed as of X date and time. And after the Civil War was over, um, there were states like Kentucky, which had agreed to join the Union, um, but also got to keep their slaves. And so the 13th Amendment was to do away with that altogether. But there were Southerner, Southern senators who argued for something different. They wanted an amendment. And in fact, it was not only the ending of slavery, there were some senators that wanted something even more aggressive that said that all people are created equal, that spoke to human rights, basically based on what was coming out of France. But the pushback uh, was twofold in Congress amongst senators. One, there were senators that said, well, equality for all would mean that women get to be equal and our wives get to presume that they're equal to their husbands. That can't fly. That could have just simply been a ruse, you know, just because they didn't want um, blacks to be equal to whites that they tossed in, this would make women equal. But even more sinister and more strategic and what we live with today is the punishment clause. There were Southern senators who were slaveholding and came from slaveholding families that said, well, what we should actually have is a punishment clause in this, which says that you're free from slavery, except if you have been convicted of a crime. It's a very short statement. It's nothing lengthy. It's nothing that's filled with paragraphs, but it's just that, that you remain enslaved if you've been convicted of a crime. And what's important is that every constitutional amendment must be ratified. And that means then that these senators went back to their states and then the amendment goes state to state for ratification. Well, what the Southerners did was to fill up before the uh, amendment came to their states and was signed off um, by their local legislatures, they filled their local state books with all sorts of crimes. So loitering crimes. In some states, it was a crime if you were black and you sold rice, crime if you're black and you sold wheat. Uh, crime if you were black and you stayed in town more than X number of days. Crime if you were black and a random white person could say your house looks uh, unkempt. Um, all manner of things that were just random and ridiculous that clearly, because they did not apply to whites, were intended to bring black people, free black people, back into a condition of slavery. So what happened as a result of the ratification of the 13th Amendment? So with the ratification then of the 13th Amendment, this meant that with the punishment clause, that in the South, they could get to business by creating all sorts of crimes and punishing Black people for these crimes, and that would bring Black people back into slavery. And the result was that plantations actually grew in size 
after they were larger in some states like Louisiana after slavery than before slavery because now there was a whole different enterprise and an enterprise that was corrupt in many ways um, in Alabama it was so bad that there were state legislators that investigated wardens and police chiefs because they were skimming money off of the top there were in these states you could convict lease, which meant that if someone's convicted of a crime, two black kids standing on a corner, much of like the kinds of things that we see today. But then, you know, that's loitering. And that loitering could lead to 20 or 30 years of incarceration. Clearly, this is about slavery. And the state could argue in these instances that, well, as long as they can pay the fine, they don't have to worry about conviction. But it's important to know that at those times, these fines were $50, $75, $100, $150. What white person in 1865 could afford to pay a fine like that, let alone some black person uh, who's just been released from the conditions of slavery, who could afford a hunt to pay a $100 fine because he or she stood on a corner with two other people talking? Some people might say, well, they're not using that provision anymore. Are they? And they are. So the punishment clause has never been repealed. And the punishment clause led to pernicious actions, um, the restoration of slavery, chain gangs, all of these kinds of things that look terrible and old people, you know, in white and black stripes on the side of roads, hitting rocks. It still continues and persists today. It's never been repealed from the United States Constitution, and even more so than states adopted it. So you had states that had decided that they would not be slave states or that they would get rid of slavery in their state. Now the federal government has placed it in the Constitution, and so slavery can thrive in their particular states. In California, the people who put out wildfires, people who are incarcerated, incarcerated men, incarcerated women, people have died in those conditions, the people who've been making masks in prisons in California, have been women in prison. Do they get the mask? No. In New York, the people who've been making hand sanitizer behind bars, um, also these people who have been convicted and this is their punishment for a crime. And what it is, is it's an added layer. Because if you've been convicted of a crime, let's say now you stole somebody's purse, your punishment is actually that, well, now you are either on probation or, or parole or you've been sentenced uh, to jail and you've been taken away from your family. But this is where the state adds on to it. Not only have you been taken away from society, not only do you have this mark on yourself that you were convicted for having stolen that purse, but now in addition to that, we'll make you do this labor for free. Um, not pay you anything, but charge you as if you were at a luxury hotel. And many people don't understand or see that. Prison is not free. It's not as if people are just getting um, free meals and, and free all of these things. In many states, they make you pay for exactly what you have been confined to. Your toothpaste isn't free. You have to pay in commissary. Your telephone calls to your family. Not only are they not free, but you're going to pay more than anybody else in America for that phone call. And yet at the same time, the state will put you to work. In some instances, you might get paid, but get this, you may be paid only one cent per hour. Maybe it will be 10 cents per hour. And what you're doing are things that are intended to be a punishment. Now, let's make clear. In some states, 
it may be that people want to opt in um, so that they can get some training and skills. But here's another pernicious aspect of this, and, and that is the following, which is that when these individuals get out, they have the mark of being incarcerated on them. We punish people by having them mark the box, whether they've been incarcerated. And when you mark the box for many industries, that means that you cannot be gainfully employed afterwards. It's a dark mark of X, do not hire this person. So even under the understanding that this helps you when you get out, it turns out the work hasn't been done privately or publicly to help people in that regard. And let's be clear, we're talking about Fortune 100, 500 companies that are using prison labor but not making a pathway for these individuals after incarceration to work in their companies. So tell us about um, Senator Merkley's resolution, what he's proposing. So tell us about Senator Merkley's resolution. So what he's proposing is to do away entirely with this punishment clause. Let's remove this out of the vestiges of our history in the United States. We know it comes from um, spoiled fruit in our country. It comes from a place um, that was a rotten place uh, in our country and continues to produce then spoiled fruit. And so he says, well, let's just get rid of the punishment clause. And from there, we can build anew. Um, And that's a bright and fresh idea. There is a perfect opportunity in the wake of this to think in aggressive ways about mass incarceration and prison reform. And this is a terrific opportunity for us to do this, not only because the United States incarcerates more people than any other country in the world. We have 5% of the world's population and yet 25% of the world's incarcerated population. And it's not just men, it's women too. The United States incarcerates more women than any other country in the world. And the majority of these women happen to be mothers. And the studies that have been produced by sociologists and others are really just stunning. Children of incarcerated parents fare worse than children who've experienced a parent's death or divorce. And so these, uh, the way in which we mass incarcerate the harms that result from this harm not only the individuals who happen to be incarcerated, but also lasting, lasting impacts on their children and on their communities. And other studies have shown, including by the federal government and organizations that are on the left and the right, that incarceration fails America. The way in which we mass incarcerate simply does not produce the results um, that we want or that we need for our society. And it costs us a lot economically, but it also costs us in other ways. Would it require a constitutional amendment? Well, so this is a very good question. Ideally, there would be a constitutional amendment to get slavery out of uh, our Constitution. And because this is in our Constitution, then uh, legislation alone, in my opinion, is not sufficient. Um, Legislation could go a long way. There are already states that are doing this, that are actually adopting those constitutional amendments, because for states that follow the federal uh, guidance, one could say on this, in terms of what Congress did in 1865, and then states followed um, suit, there are states like Colorado that, through referendum, have now removed 
um, the punishment clause from their state constitution. Very recently, Utah and Nebraska did the same. And so we can look to the models of those three states um, and do this as well. So it could be done by federal constitutional amendment, or it could also be done by states taking this up. Um, in some ways, you can see the state action is similar to marriage equality, where the states have got busy with doing that uh, before the Supreme Court ruled on the matter. But either way, this is an urgent issue for our time. Let's just suppose that a constitutional amendment was passed and that language was taken out. Would it still be effective in the 20 states that still have that language in their constitutions? In other words, would they also have to take it out in order for this really to have a nationwide effect? That's a great question. So if it is taken out of the Constitution because Congress has removed it, congressional law trumps state law. So that is why, in fact, we have the the federalist system as we have, which is that that which is ruled upon by Congress and uh, that which is made into our United States Constitution serves as the platform for the country. And at that point, any, any language that continues in a state's constitution would essentially be null and void because of the action taken by the federal government and what is in the federal constitution. One might see similarly um, the very slow actions to repeal other either Jim Crow era or slavery era laws. Um, that existed in Southern constitutions or in Southern legislation, um, all null and void after congressional action or constitutional action, um, but nevertheless sometimes slow for removal because of symbolic action in the in Southern states to preserve, um, to in some ways at least symbolically preserve um, the status of separate but equal. Does it seem to you as if this part of the 13th Amendment and the effects are something that most people in the country aren't aware of? Most people are unaware of this legacy and how it has a significant role in how we police and understand policing incarceration today. So if we were take, to take a step back and how this so cleverly joins together, right? You know, one must understand that the Southern slave-holding senators understood what they were doing by saying, let's slip this into the freedom clause. So we're going, we're going to put an amendment together for the Constitution, but we're going to include this. This was not by happenstance. Um, this was not by mistake. This was actually shrewd, very clever, intentional action on behalf of Southern legislators. And most Americans have no idea about it. Many law professors don't. Many law professors teach the 13th Amendment, only the first part of it, that it abolishes slavery, not paying any attention to what came next. But if you study anthropology as I do, sociology as I do, then you see all of what came after that, which was the reproduction, the reification of slavery in those states and the permissibility of it in other states that had abolished slavery or had never had it. And so most people do not know about it, but it flows from there. This is what 
we get with Jim Crow as well. If we were to think about slavery and just take one quick moment with that, the original police were slave patrol police. The very badges on which polices wear today is based on um, badges from the 17 and 1800s. They look exactly the same. So when we think about policing, when we think about mass incarceration, when we think about punishment in this nation, it is racially connected. It is slave connected. And so when we fail to pay attention to the origins of the 13th Amendment, we miss an important part of our American history that helps us to explain and understand why incarceration has turned out to be the way that it is and how different it happens to be um, than in some of the nations that we call our peer nations. Here in the United States, it's been decidedly different because it's been racialized in a very different way, and that has continued. When we think about the 13th Amendment and removing this clause, that is when we actually get closer to this idea about racial justice in America. Thanks for being on the show. That's Professor Michelle Goodwin of the University of California, Irvine. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. I'm June Grosso. Thanks so much for listening. Please tune into the show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Eastern right here on Bloomberg Radio. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Podcast. I'm June Grosso. Thanks so much for listening. And remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law Podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And please listen to the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio.